Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Wednesday, December 22nd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, a roundup of Christmas traditions from around the world and throughout time. Plus, the U.S. Army is working on a vaccine that could protect against all COVID and SARS variants, including Omicron. And there's a cream cheese shortage, so Kraft Heinz is bribing us not to make cheesecakes over the holidays. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Well, as it is the last show before Christmas, I thought I'd do a roundup of Christmas traditions from around the world, some forgotten and some still celebrated. Let's begin maturely with the scatological. Over in Catalonia, there are two Christmas traditions still celebrated in many homes dealing with poop. First is Tio de Nadal, a Yule log with a face on it that children feed in the days leading up to Christmas and sometimes cover with a blanket to keep it warm. It's kind of a little bit like Elf on a Shelf, where you've got this character in your house that the kids are interacting with every day, leaving things out for it that mysteriously disappear in the morning. But on Christmas Day, Tio de Nadal takes a sharp turn from the surveillance threats of obedience of the Elf on the Shelf and instead... Children are instructed to hit the log with sticks while singing a song until it poops out presents for them. I love it. Honestly, this kind of ritual mischief is way more what winter celebrations were always about versus the kind of pious innocence pushed on a lot of kids in certain cultures for the last few centuries, but more on that in a few minutes. So, the other crappy tradition from Catalonia is El Caganer. This is a figurine of a guy squatting down and pushing out a deuce that is included in every nativity setting. Some say it goes back to the practice of someone uh, naturally fertilizing the fields back in the 1700s-ish, a task that would have been very important and therefore included in the sprawling nativity displays. But like so many traditions, the origins are a bit murky. If you want to hear more about both El Caganer and Tio de Nadal, I did a segment on them on this exact date last year. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And another quick plug for a tradition I dove into a bit more in depth this time last year, link also in the show notes, is the German drink Feuerzangenbola. It begins as a humble mulled wine, but then you dip a sugar cone in rum, suspend it over the wine, and light it on fire. The sugar caramelizes and bits of it drip into the wine, giving it a kick of sweetness. Sounds amazing. But if you want more deliciousness, bop on over to Japan, where despite about only 1% of the country's population being Christian, Christmas has become a huge holiday. Santa visits, people exchange gifts, families put up Christmas trees, and places are decorated with lights. It's all a secular celebration, mostly focused on joy and happiness, and Christmas Eve is also set aside as a kind of Valentine's Day when couples spend time together and get each other gifts. The more famous Japanese tradition you might have heard of is eating fried chicken on Christmas, specifically from KFC. Quoting Stephen Johnson's roundup of Christmas traditions in Lifehacker, KFC generates 5% of its annual business on that single day. Like all good secular holiday celebrations, the trend began with marketing. Back in 1970, the manager of the first KFC in Japan began advertising fried chicken meals as a way of experiencing 
experiencing a traditional Western-style holiday. It caught on, and now KFC on Christmas is so popular, Japanese people have to order weeks in advance. End quote. Another secular kind of commercial tradition happens over in Sweden, where every Christmas Eve, most of the nation gathers around their televisions to watch old Donald Duck cartoons. And not even just the Christmas ones, but a whole mishmash of Disney clips and shorts from the 30s through the 50s. It's actually a special that Disney aired in December 1958 called, in America, From All of Us to All of You, and it opens with a greeting from Walt Disney himself. It first aired in Sweden in 1959, called over there Kale Anka, Och Hans Vanar Ansker Gudjul, or Donald Duck and His Friends Wish You a Merry Christmas. As Charlotte Hagstrom, an ethnology professor at Lund University, explained to Slate's Jeremy Stahl back in 2009, after he experienced the tradition with his wife's Swedish family, part of what helped the tradition take off in the beginning was the fact that in 1959, Swedish families were just beginning to own television sets, so the activity was a novelty. And also, there was only one channel at the time, and the what would become annual airing of Kaleanka was the only only time of the year in which they got to see Disney cartoons. So it was a pretty special and unique thing. Hogstrom believes if the cartoon had aired at any other later time, it wouldn't have captured the nation's attention and love quite as well. And boy, has it. Quoting Stahl, Kalayanka is typically one of three most popular television events of the year, with between 40 and 50% of the country tuning in to watch. Lines of dialogue from the cartoons have entered common Swedish parlance. Stockholm's Nordic Museum has a display in honor of the show in an exhibit titled Traditions. Over the last half century, the characters and sketches have become as much a part of the holiday as the Christmas tree, so much so that each time TV1 has suggested modifying the schedule, public outcry has forced the network to back down. End quote. And according to Lifehacker, this past year in 2020, more than half of the Swedish population tuned in, making it the most watched broadcast in Swedish history. And they all watch it live at 3 p.m. No DVRs or DVDs. Even the host, no longer Walt Disney from the original recording, but their own Swedish host, has to do it live too. Arne Weisse, the host from 1972 to 2002, became a national icon, but also says that public pressure to host the show live on Christmas Day for three decades ruined his personal life. If you want to watch the original English-language version from 1958, it's surprisingly not on Disney+, Plus, at least in the U.S., but someone uploaded it to archive.org, so there's a link to that in the show notes. A warning, though, Disney's classic racism and weird cartoon violence from their early years is on full display in ways that got censored over the years in American rebroadcasts, so just be aware of that going into it. But heading over to South America, here's another tradition highlighted by Steven Johnson in Lifehacker, roller skating on Christmas Day in Venezuela. Quote, On Christmas morning, people light off firecrackers to wake everyone up, then everyone straps on roller skates and roller boogies to mass. After all the praying, families and friends then get together to dance, eat, and make music. The skating tradition is said to have started as a southern hemispheric response to sledding, and has grown so popular that the streets are closed to traffic in Venezuela's capital city of Caracas on Christmas morning to keep the skaters safe. End quote. 
I love hearing about the different ways people celebrate Christmas in the Southern Hemisphere, which honestly should not feel as strange to me as it does, considering I grew up in Texas, where 80-degree weather on Christmas Day was not unheard of. But a place that definitely gets more than their fair share of white Christmases is Ireland, where January 6th is known by some as Little Christmas, or sometimes Women's Christmas. The idea is that the women of the community have put in much more than their fair share of work for the whole Christmas season, and so on that day, Epiphany Day to some, they get a break. They go hang out with their friends, maybe go out to the pub, while the men stay home to look after the kids and take care of household duties. While studies continue to prove that women are still doing more household work and childcare on average, even when they also work full-time, I do like Johnson's suggestion for another potential way to celebrate Little Christmas. Quote, I propose a holiday where the people who work long hours on Christmas Eve or at Walmart on Black Friday can all take a day off, while the wealthy, I spend my December in Vail types hold down the fort. End quote. And Johnson's proposal is actually exactly what some Christmas and pre-Christmas winter celebrations used to be all about. Historian Stephen Nissenbaum explains what he calls the practice of inversion in roughly 17th century Europe and its colonies in his book The Battle for Christmas, quote, Christmas was an occasion when the social hierarchy itself was symbolically turned upside down in a gesture that inverted designated roles of gender, age, and class. During the Christmas season, those near the bottom of the social order acted high and mighty. Men might dress like women, and women might dress and act like men. Young people might imitate and mock their elders. For example, a boy might be chosen bishop and take on for a brief time some of the authority of a real bishop. A peasant or an apprentice might become Lord of Misrule and mimic the authority of a real gentleman. Increase Mather, Cotton Mather's father, explained with an anthropologist's clarity what he believed to be the origins of this practice. He said, In the Saturnalian days, masters did wait upon their servants. The Gentiles called Saturn's time the Golden Age, because in it there was no servitude. In commemoration whereof, on his festival, servants must be masters." And this practice, like so many others, was simply picked up and transposed to Christmas, where those who were low in stations became masters of misrule, end quote. And part of this tradition sometimes included the working class going into the homes of the upper class to sing Christmas hymns, expecting to be given food and drink in return. And while there are records of it getting out of hand and being ill-received by the upper classes at times, for the most part it was seen as a way to reinforce class divisions and for employers or the landed gentry to make up for shorting or abusing their staff and tenants throughout the year by giving them a big Christmas treat. Another side of it, though, was that inversion. Sometimes it wasn't just hymns being sung, but costumes being put on and all kinds of mischief being played, door-to-door -door and in the streets with impromptu parties. This was called masking or mumming. It wasn't exclusive to Christmas. It would happen on many festival days across cultures. And yes, all of these traditions in a sort of meandering way is how we ended up with trick-or-treating at Halloween. The drunken revelry like 
licentiousness and cross-dressing that all ran rampant for as much as a few weeks around Christmastide each year were all reasons that the more buttoned-up religious folks like the Puritans actually banned Christmas for decades. But it's always tough to root out long-held and fun traditions. Quoting Leslie Feinberg's Transgender Warriors, Despite numerous local and royal edicts banning, masking, and mumming, festival days continued to be marked by women dressing and masking as men and men as women. Trans expression emerged in culture throughout Europe in holiday celebrations, rituals, carnival days, masquerade parties, theater, literature, and opera. That's why cross-dressing is still part of holiday festivals today in the United States, like the Mummers Parades, Mardi Gras, and Halloween, end quote. And yes, even Mummers parades still happen. A big one on New Year's Day has been going on in Philadelphia since 1901, and they're not letting even Omicron stop them this year. Although they did require all parade participants to undergo a sensitivity training course, because, you know, a tradition of inverting things like gender and race can easily become pretty offensive these days. Just because it has a historical precedent doesn't mean it's okay. Often the opposite, really. But anyways, that was just a taste of the many fun, fascinating, and straight-up weird traditions from around the world and throughout time. You know, humans have always gotten up to bizarre activities when trying to create meaning or blow off some steam. A lot of it goes unrecorded, unless it has something anchoring it, like a holiday, to give it relevance to historians. Which is part of why I like looking back at holidays so much. You know, I like figuring out why we do the strange things that we do, and learn learning about some of the even weirder stuff that we used to do. Scientists at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research say that within weeks, they expect to release a vaccine that is effective not just against COVID-19, including variants like Omicron, but also effective against all SARS variants. It has so far only been through animal trials and phase one human trials. Both were successful, but phase two and three testing remains, so we probably shouldn't bank on this just yet. The U.S. Army lab has been working on this vaccine since early 2020, like most other teams, but have taken this long to get to this point for two reasons. First, they were determined to produce a vaccine that would be effective against all variants, and two, they had to find trial participants who were unvaccinated and had hadn't had COVID previously, a steadily decreasing population. Also, this long, and just a contextual reminder that the vaccines we have broke every record and expectation of vaccine development in history. Even this one from Walter Reed has been done at breakneck speed. Quoting Defense One, Unlike existing vaccines, Walter Reed's spike ferritin nanoparticle, or SPFN, uses a soccer ball-shaped protein with 24 faces for its vaccine, which allows scientists to attach the spikes of multiple coronavirus strains on different faces of the protein. The next step is seeing how the new pan-coronavirus vaccine interacts with people who were previously vaccinated or previously sick. Walter Reed is working with a yet-to-be-named industry partner for that wider rollout. End quote. 
SPFN, designed on a new platform called Self-Assembling Protein Nanoparticle, would still require two doses, for this one 28 days apart, at least based on findings so far from Phase 1 trials. The U.S. Army is not the only one working on a pan-coronavirus vaccine, as I've mentioned previously. In figuring out a vaccine to protect against all variants, all SARS variants, or one that would protect against the flu and COVID in one jab are all being worked on. But this is the furthest along one of those seems to be. As Dr. Kayvon Majerad, director of the Emerging Infectious Diseases Branch at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research and co-inventor of the vaccine, said in a press release, quote, The accelerating emergence of human coronaviruses throughout the past two decades and the rise of SARS-CoV-2 variants, including most recently Omicron, underscored the continued need for next-generation preemptive vaccines that confer broad protection against coronavirus diseases, end quote. In case you missed it, there is a cream cheese shortage happening in the U.S. The New York Times reported earlier this month that bagel shop owners have been struggling to get their hands on the unprocessed, unwhipped, raw version of Kraft Heinz's Philadelphia cream cheese that they use as a base for their independent recipes. Quoting the Times, Jenna Thornton, a Kraft Heinz spokeswoman, said in a statement that the company was seeing a spike in demand for several of its products. To accommodate the increases, she said the company has been shipping out 35% more product than last year to food service partners, including bagel shops. We continue to see elevated and sustained demand across a number of categories where we compete, Ms. Thornton said in a statement. As more people continue to eat breakfast at home and use cream cheese as an ingredient in easy desserts, we expect to see this trend continue. Problems have popped up at every point along the supply chain that brings cream cheese from factories to the morning bagel, said Phil Pisano, a sales representative at Fisher Foods, including a labor shortage in the manufacturing sector that began at the height of the coronavirus pandemic, a lack of truck drivers because of resistance to vaccine mandates, and a scarcity of packaging supplies, end quote. To help tamp down demand and disappointment, Kraft Heinz came up with a creative solution for consumers. They literally paid people 20 bucks not to make a cheesecake this holiday season. They said in a video, quote, This year, turn that famous cheesecake into those famous brownies. End your meal with a friendly fight over the last holiday cupcake. Share some cookies. Anything that'll make you feel anything in that cheesecake-shaped hole in your holiday heart. You bake it, we'll buy it. Or get it store-bought. Pretend you baked it, and we'll buy that too. End quote. Now, unfortunately, the promotion, which was open to 18,000 people during drawings last Friday and Saturday, has already sold out. So my apologies for not catching this and alerting you sooner. But, you know, it's such an interesting pandemic flex that I just had to share it still. I mean, the video ad they put together literally shows an empty grocery store shelf and says, this is not an empty shelf. It's a holiday tradition waiting another year. Brands being forced to acknowledge shortages in their marketing, especially in video ads, for some reason just really underscores for me how strange this extended pandemic era is. Well, that is it from me for this week. 
We're taking Thursday and Friday off for the holidays. Whatever you celebrate, pooping logs, roller skating to mass, or nothing at all. I hope you get a little time to rest over the coming days. If you're missing the show, check out some of the old episodes I linked to in the show notes, or go back to any old episodes. We've got a lot of them. But that is it from me for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday. Happy holidays, and stay safe out there.